Psalm 33, you can turn there. We're going to be surveying a few verses tonight. How many of you would say that you listen to music? I mean, I know there's exceptions, but you'd probably say most every day. How many say most every day I would listen to music sometime? Okay. Christian's music, I think we listen to music all the time. And uh, when you are in your car or at your house and you're by yourself, do you listen to the music or do you sing with it? How many sing with it? How many of you would not do that if anyone else was around? Thank you. (laughs) Um, One of the most frequent commands in the Bible, believe it or not, is that we are commanded to sing. We're commanded to sing praises to God. Um, We sing songs of praise and worship in the Bible. And those songs of worship have basically two purposes. One is to communicate who God is. And the second is to commemorate what he's done. And you'll find some of the songs, if you take the time to look at them, one of the reasons why you like them so much is the best songs have both components. And uh, so we love those songs. In fact, I'm going to see if you could do a little Bible quiz trivia tonight. How many songs do you think are recorded in the Bible? What would you guess? How many would say there is more than 20 songs recorded in the Bible? Okay. How many would say there's 50 or more songs in the Bible? How many would say there is a hundred or more songs in the Bible? 150? 200? Okay, slow down. 185. 185 songs recorded in the Bible, some longer and some shorter. A lot of it is poetry um, that's in the Bible. And, but there's a lot of songs. The poems are to be sung or they were to be chanted or they would be intended to be accompanied by a musical instrument. Um, out of those 185 songs, 80% of them are in what book of the Bible? You got it. Psalms. What is, a little trivia more here, what is the, fir- the first and the last song sung in the Bible are the same song? Do you know the name of it? I'll give you a hint. First and last song, the first song sung in the Bible is Exodus 15, and the last one is Revelation 15. Does that help you remember what the song is called? It's the song of Moses. That is the first and last song sung in the Bible. We'll hopefully get that far tonight, and I'll show you why that's important. Longest song in the Bible Yes, Psalm 119 is also considered a song. It is 1,734 words. That's like 85 stanzas. (laughs) We're not going to be singing that one anytime soon, but it is a really good one. Shortest song in the Bible. You want to write it down. 2 Chronicles 5.13 or 2 Chronicles 20.21. Each one of those have seven words in Hebrew. The most famous song in the Bible is, 
it has the word song in the title. Yes, the Song of Solomon, right? right? The whole book's named after that. Uh, most popular song in the Bible. The, uh, it was number one on the Israel charts. <laughs> um, it was the Song of David. And when he, here's what, remember when he came in from his victories in battle, what did the ladies that were parading the side of the road during the parade, the victory parade, what were they singing? Do you remember the the words? Saul has, yeah, and David has slain his, yes, that, believe it or not, that is 1 Samuel 18. That song became so popular that three chapters later in 1 Samuel 21, the Philistines in their country were commenting on David and they quoted that song. So it wasn't just popular amongst God's people. Even the secular people who listened to the radio back then really liked it. All right? So that was a very popular song. Um, let me ask you this, seriously. We, will sing, we do sing songs of worship and praise to God on earth. And we will do it in heaven, and we will do it in the new heaven and the new earth. There is no singing in hell. There is no music in hell. Why? Why do you think it's true? And and what would it mean? How would that make the punishment of eternal judgment so much worse? No music, no singing in hell. Why do you think it is? Yes. Oh, no microphone yet. Go ahead. I'll repeat what you say. Okay. Instead, there'll be sorrow and weeping, right? Which means basically no, there's no joy, no happiness. So what do we know about, what should singing be if it's only sorrow and weeping and there's no singing because of it? What do we think that songs should mean to us? What do they do to us on the inside? Yes. Yes, it should be praise to God. And they are the overflow of what? Yes, joy and happiness in the Lord, which they don't have. That is a sad thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, I I was watching almost everyone in this room tonight said that they sing or they enjoy music. Can you imagine no music or singing for all the rest of eternity? I know there are a lot worse things in hell than that, but that certainly um, is a troublesome one. There are songs in the Bible... Um, that there are occasions that this, the people who wrote the song and sang the song um, responded to in order to write these songs. I have told you one of them, the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is Exodus 15. And when God, by his almighty hand, brought plagues upon Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was swallowed up, verse 15 says that they wrote a song. And songs that are new songs are always songs in response to something victorious that God has done for his people in the story of redemption. And that's what Moses' song was. It's the same one in the beginning of the Bible that it is the end of the Bible. They're recording and remembering what God had done in defeating his enemy Egypt and giving God's people freedom. Can you name any other songs that have the name of the author in them? And if you're really good... What was the story associated with it? Can you think of any? I see I'm stretching you. I'll give them to you if you don't know, and then you can tell me one or the other. Yes. 
The song of Miriam, do you remember what it was? They crossed the Red Sea. Yes, she was part of the Exodus 15 song, right? Yes. What else? Do you think of any other ones? Yes. Mary had a song. Excellent. What was Mary's song about? Yes, the situation around Jesus' birth, mostly about reversals, the Magnificat, right? About how God was going to bring low the people that were high and the people that were high, I mean low that was going to bring them up high, opposites, reversals. That was a good song. Yes. What other ones? Yes. Yes. There, there's all the Christmas songs or so forth they call them, right? Yep. They're all celebrating in some way what Jesus coming in the world meant for them. And the victory that he was going to bring them. But they didn't know how that victory would be accomplished. Other ones. Old Testament is too, as well. Yes. The song of Deborah and Barak. Do you remember what book of the Bible and what the circumstance? Yes. The victory over Sisera's army. And if you're really awesome, what book of the Bible? Judges. Okay. You are way up there. Judges what chapter? Okay, chapter 5. That's good. That's good, though. Yeah, another after the battle song, right? Can you give me another one? This is a really cool one. Can you t- fill in the details for me? What was the man, the king, who led his people out to battle, and the musicians and the singers were out front worshiping first? Jehoshaphat. Remember Second Chronicles 20? They went out to battle, and the people out front were not the soldiers, but the musicians and the choir. And we're going to practice that. This, <laughs> no, we're not going to have the choir out front. But right? So it's good. Those are good. Those are excellent ones. There are others. I'm just going to list them for you if you want to study them. There is the song, we sing it. Maybe I should. It's an old kid's song, an old, a children's song. Do you remember the song, Spring Up, Oh Well? That's a song. That actually is a song. And it's in Deuteronomy 21, when they, God bring water to them when they're in the wilderness. He, that was another one. There's a song of Moses and Joshua, Deuteronomy 31. There's a song of the bow, it's called, when David lamented. It was a funeral dirge when he celebrated Saul and Jonathan's life after they were killed. And then there is a person in the Psalms who wrote 12 songs. All of them have his name on it. He worked and he was appointed by David to run the choir in the temple. And his name was? Yes, Asaph. And let's go a couple bit more. How many songs? Who's the person who wrote more songs than anyone recorded in the Bible? And how many was it? Who wrote the most songs? The most prolific songwriter in the Bible? Who? No, but he did write a lot. He probably second. But you're really close to who it is. Yeah, Solomon, his son. A thousand and five songs. Who sang in prison when they were in stocks at midnight? When did Jesus sing? You know. Don't overthink it. It's easy. We do it right up front here. Yes, when at the Last Supper? Yes, they sung the Hallel. What is the Hallel? It's Psalm 113, 
to 118, those five songs, they would sing those before they would go out. That was their tradition and custom, right? So a lot of things about music and songs in the Bible. Write it down if you're taking notes tonight. We're going to talk about the phrase, the new song. The new song. The new song does not, emphasis is not so much that someone wrote it and it's brand new, although we have a lot of new songs written in our day. It's more newness because God has done something new in the redemptive story and he has saved his people in some way. I'm going to list them all because we're not going to cover them all. I'm going to give you all nine references to the use of that phrase and make some observations. Here you go. Six psalms have in it the phrase, a new song. Psalm 33.3, just to give you an idea. I'm going to read a couple of them. That's all. Psalm 33.3 says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 40 in verse 3. We're going to try to say a few more words and a little bit more about that one. A little bit. Psalm 96 1. Psalm 98 1. Psalm 144 9. Psalm 149 1. There are only nine uses. Six of them are in the Psalms. And that matters. I'll show you why in a little bit. The second one, or second group, is only one Isaiah 42 10. And it is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, of which I believe there are four. And they talk about Messiah and his coming and even the suffering servant. The last two uses are in the end of the Bible, in the New Testament. Revelation 5.9 and Revelation 14.3. Again, let me tell you what they're for. These are songs, new songs, that were written in the Bible in response to a new work of salvation that God has done in result and the redemptive story for his people. All of the songs, let me just say this, all the songs in the Old Testament that are called the new song all point to this new song in the New Testament because there is a trajectory and they're all pointing, they're going somewhere. They're just not naming a bunch of things, random events that God did in saving his people. There is a pattern and they're pointing somewhere and they want you to know that the climax of the new songs that are sung and the climax of the redemption that all these new songs point to is found in Jesus. That's why the last two are about him and especially in chapter 15 is the song of the lamb. Those are it. And in the Psalms, if you have all six of those, most of them are written by David and are about David. And so if you're writing down, you could put down this. David is the king who is delivered by God and saved out of his trouble. And so he is the song, he is the one that has a new song, and he is sung about what God has done to him. The greater David, which all of his psalms point to, is Jesus, who's the king, but he's not the king necessarily who is delivered by them. He is, the new songs are about him because he's the actual king who accomplishes the deliverance. So those two are really important distinctions to make between the two. They are songs of victory. Mark this down. They are songs leading up to Jesus' song, the new song. They are all songs about physical wars and battles that Israel actually fought 
true physical enemies, armies that they faced. And at times, personal dilemmas like running from Saul, King Saul that David had. And how God delivered him personally, how he delivered Israel nationally. And they are songs of victory, flesh and blood victories. But when we get to the New Testament, it's a different kind. The two in Revelation are not physical victories. They are spiritual victories that lead to the ultimate victory. And that's why the last song is called the Song of the Lamb. Because it talks about the victory over our greatest enemies, which were not Philistines or Egyptians or Babylonians or any of those ones. They are sin and hell and death and Satan. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, has the victory, but he died to secure those things for us. We get an idea of even a foreshadowing of that if you look at the one passage to balance out the nine. Isaiah 42, and t- verse 10. Let's look at that one together. We're just breezing through these a little bit so that you can study a little bit more on your own. But Isaiah 42.10 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, if you know anything about Isaiah, it's the first 39 chapters are history. Looking back over Isaiah's history of Israel in recent days. In the last half, chapter 40 through um, the end of the book is about Israel's future and what God's going to do. And that's where this verse falls in. That there is going to come a servant of God who's going to bring that final climactic victory for them. And he says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Silas sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a man of war. So Let me tell you, and I want to make an application right away. There are two things that you have to know about all of these verses, no matter where they are, Old or New Testament, that talk about a new song that they're singing, okay? Number one, they all have to do in their context of some sort of battle, physical or spiritual. And so here's what we have to put together. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Worship and war go together. So when the psalmist says, in Psalm 40, David said, but the Lord has raised me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry or the the muddy bog that he was in, into a pit. The psalmist pictures himself literally as a second Joseph, where he was in a pit, brought down low, and God brought him out of that pit like he did Joseph, and then exalts him. David sees himself as... Another Joseph in God's story of redemption. And so you, you, he, Joseph, ta- he, I mean, David talks like that. And how he was in a pit, God brought him out, put him, his feet on solid ground, gave him security. That's exactly what he did for Joseph. And he sees himself, because if you read the Bible very closely, you'll, you'll believe more and more as you read it, that these writers and these people in Scripture knew exactly what the story of God was, what was going to happen in things, in the purpose of it, and they saw themselves in it and how their circumstances and the events of their lives had purpose because of it. And I want to make you see that for yourself tonight. So here's what he does. These are the servant, I should say, the, the Psalms are about battles, worship. So if you're going to sing a song and you're going to live in God's victory, 
Write this down. Here's what it means for you. God wants you to know that when you worship him, you are also going to have to fight. There's a warfare going on. And so one of the purposes which we sing songs is we sing songs and we remember. Why did they sing the song of Moses all the way in Revelation when it happened all the way back in Exodus? Why would they be doing that? Because here's what you need to do. Songs help us to commemorate. They don't just communicate who he is. They commemorate what he's done. We need to, part of being victorious and living out the faith that, the victory that Jesus has given us is remembering what he's done. Illustration. David is going to fight Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. And in it, Saul's having a hard time believing David could win this battle. And part of it is because he's young in his stature. He can't pick up and carry Saul's armor. He can't even wear it. It's way too big for him. And then he says, you have, you've never fought a battle. This guy is a seasoned warrior and has fought many battles. Look how little you are. Look how big he is. And so you have all the externals, of course, right? And David says to him, what's his reason? He doesn't try to deny it. He knows he's small. He knows he has no experience in a warfare situation. But what is his argument back to Saul about why he should be the one to fight him? Do you remember? When I was keeping my father's sheep, I fought the, the lion and the bear. And then what does he say about Goliath? This Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine will be what? No different than they will be. So you know what you need? We need history. We need lion and bear stories. We need to know that I can face my Goliath because I've already seen and experienced and for some told, see, lions and bears, which everybody thinks are impossible to defeat. Well, I've already done that. God has always shown his, shown his power in me. So if he can do this, and he can do this in the past, then what's the assumption? Well, then he can do this in the present. You know why they need the song of the Mo Moses when it happened and thousands of years later when it's way past the event? Because we all need it. We all need it. You know why I encourage you from this pulpit all the time? Read biographies. Read biographies and autobiographies of great men and women of faith. You know why? We need to have stories of people who have gone through all the trials and difficulties and even much more than most likely anyone in this room will ever face. And we need to know that they faced it and they trusted God and they believed in him and God worked out things in their lives and gave God glory for it. And here's what the Bible says. That's what we're about See, we need those stories. We need to tell ourselves, see, this is the story we're in. And let me tell you the second point I get from that general observation. All the passages do not only include a war context in the new song, Victory, but they always include, and I wrote down a number of them, references to what the purpose for the battles really are. If you're not careful, you could read 
God bringing people out of Egypt and slavery. You could read how God uh, got great victory in all these battles. And you could, the sun stood still. And the, the conquest of Jericho. And the, and the walls came down. And you could read all these stories that you know backwards and forward and heard from your Sunday school teacher when you were kids. And you would think that there isn't that great. That God just brought his victory to his people and saved them from death and all those things. And you would be right only on a low level. What's the, what's the purpose of it? I was in Panama, and we had three things that we did almost every session that we taught. First one was I would give them questions and answers, and they could ask, and they did for hours, literally. Um, hours about any question they wanted to ask in the Bible, personal, biblical, or ministry. And they asked a lot of those. The second thing we did was hermeneutics. I taught them how to study the Bible for themselves. The third thing that we did is a section called The Story of His Glory. And we went through the Bible beginning in Genesis all the way to the end. And I showed them the main stories, all the main stories of the Bible that you could say, maybe not verbatim, but you could tell me the stories and what were the main things in it. You know them all. Most people see them as relegated or separated stories with Aesop morals at the end. Aesop fables, mores. You know, here's what the story is and here's the moral lesson about how I live my life. And they see them as that. But the Bible is not like that. This is one big book, and it's a story of his glory from the beginning to end. And all of the stories that we so famously know are all connected. They tell a story. And you have to understand how all those things connect, or you won't be able to see your part in it or the purpose of what God's doing. So when God defeats Israel's enemies, he does not do it primarily for their joy of some sort of result or reward. He does it in every one of these verses, a new song that has that phrase in it. The context says this, so that all the nations might know, that they might see that there is no other God in all the earth, that all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, and, and all these phrases you know why God does all these huge things and why he delivered David and why he delivered Israel? And can I say it, why at times he delivers you? You know what it is? Because he has gone public with his glory. And he wants to show that there is only one true living God. I am not going to tell you it took me all week to go through the story of glory with them. So we're not doing that tonight. But I want to show you one example of what I mean because I really want you to get this. Exodus chapter 9. You'll turn there real quick. Have you ever wondered, if you read this text, you would because it's in there. Have you ever wondered why God delivered Moses and the Israelites from Egypt and their bondage the way that he did? And I want you to think about this tonight, and we're going to do a little exercise. We have time. All right, we're going to do a 21st century exercise. Write this down. It doesn't just matter that God delivers and has the power to do it. It matters how he chooses to deliver with that power. So not just the fact that he can and does, but what matters is how he chooses to deliver. All right? You must know them both if you're going to receive consolation and encouragement from it in your own life. Let me show you what I mean. This is what God himself says. Exodus 9, 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Notice this. He does not say only, let my people go. That is not what he says. He says that, but it's more. He is not just saying, hey, let my people go because I'm going to free them. That's not it. Let them go. What's the purpose? That they may serve me, and it's the same word for worship. Let my people go that they might truly worship me. Why would he say that to Pharaoh? Because he wants them to know that there's only one God, and they're not the Egyptian gods. It's just him. That's why he must do it. And look what he tells them, verse 14. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me, what, in all the earth. So what's the purpose of the plagues in all ten of them? Not primarily to get them out of bondage, although it results in that. What is it? He's going to do ten plagues. Every single one of the plagues was against a false god in Egypt. There was a god that controlled the sun, moon, and stars. And when the sun went dark, that god showed how had no power. There was a God of the river. There's a God of the insects. There's a God, all those things that happened to each one of those represented one of the gods in Egypt. And every one of those plagues demonstrated that none of those gods had any comparison in power or might or wisdom to the true living God of Israel. He chooses it how he does it because his goal is to say to all the nations through his people, I'm the only one. There is no one else like me. Listen to what he says. Verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off. Do you see what he's saying? I could have said this. Disease. And in one day your whole people are wiped out. I could have done that. I could have. Because he went through with the death angel and wiped out all the firstborn in one night. He says, I could have chose to wipe you all out with sickness and never have one single plague. That would have been it. But he didn't. You know why? Because he's got purposes. And his purposes aren't just to get them out of Egypt. The purpose is to show the Egyptians that they're worshiping the wrong gods. You know why? Because the story says... In Revelation 5, 9, they sing a new song. Not just the Moses one, but the song of the Lamb. But listen, who's singing the last version of the new song? Around the throne of God, 5, 9 and 7, 9 are almost identical. What are, who's, who's around the throne singing it? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I told the Panama people on the last night, I said, I'm going to try to come back next January. I'm going to bring my wife. We're going to have stuff for the ladies too. And I said, but I don't know if I'll be back. Not because I don't want to. I'm not planning on it because I may not live that long. I may not see you. You may not be back. I said, but here's what I do know, that there'll be people from the Kuna Islands who will be around the throne someday Worshiping and praising the Lamb. You know why? It's part of the story. It's part of the story. That's why it's important to know not just that God has the power and does deliver, 
but why he delivers. Why is that important? Let me give you an example. Here they are. What do you do when you have cancer? You get the diagnosis and you have cancer. If you know the story of God, what would it mean for you to respond to cancer in a way that demonstrates that you know this story? What is part of the story? Tell me what part of the story is. Why would David be thrown, Psalm 40, sings a new song because he was once he was in a pit and God brought him out. He was suffering and then he was exalted. Have you ever heard of that, that pattern before? Yes, you have. You've heard about it in Joseph where he was suffering and God brought him out and exalted. David was suffering and he was exalted Daniel, Matt, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lion's den, fiery furnace. Low as you could get. Ultimate suffering brought out of those things. Jesus, suffering on the cross, put in a grave, brought out of it. Revelation, the martyrs before the throne of God, crying how long? You know what? Because they had suffered and they were suffering And God delivers them out of all that bondage. And they stand before him on the throne. So the pattern is what? Suffering and then glory. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 4.19? Do not, 4.12, sorry. Do not think it it, or be surprised when you go through suffering and trials. Fiery trials, right? And what's the admonition? Because that's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to the prophets and the apostles. So if that's the pattern in the story, and you're living in that story, what would you say to cancer? How would you respond to it? Would you be surprised that at the age of 41 that you got cancer? Should you be surprised? No. Why? Because what's the pattern? Suffering, then exaltation. Sometimes the suffering is directly because of Jesus, and sometimes the suffering is just because we live in a sinful world. But the pattern is. But but how would you face suffering when you're so young? How would you face it? All the difficulties, all the things you go through, things that you never expected, you weren't looking for, and you would thought they would never or at least way later in your life. How do you handle them emotionally? How do you handle them spiritually and respond to them? Because what do you know that will ultimately happen to you? You will be delivered out of the pit, won't you? You will be exalted. Example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the king, we aren't going to bow down. You can turn it up seven times hotter all you want. It isn't going to happen. And what does he say? And then what is it, the uh, Mercy Me, the song, right? Even if? What do they say? Oh, we know. Listen to this. We know that our God is able to deliver. That's what the songs we sing are. How do they know? They know the story. They know how God can deliver. He can deliver out of any circumstance. You know why? Because they know what the story says. They know what their God can do. But how do they face the fiery furnace? But if not, we're still not going to bow down. Now, see, that's where we get the faith from. That's why we can sing the songs. Why? Because we know that he's provided the victory. I don't know if the victory will come in life or through death. I don't know. But I know it's coming. 
See, that's the God. You know why that's important? That allows us to open up our lives to risking, to going on missions trips, to going to places we've never been before and going through all kinds of difficulties, what we would call, if you're an American anyways, we, hot, without air conditioning, not great toilets, or, or whatever it is. Oh, see, it changes your whole mind. Why? Because don't you want to go somewhere to further the story? Don't you? Don't you want to be a part of it here, locally and globally? Isn't it worth your money? Isn't it worth your time? Isn't it worth your prayers? Cancer. If you had cancer, what if you lose your loved one? What if you lose or have financial problems? You could go on and on and on. But see, when you sing a new song, you're celebrating the victory that Jesus Christ has given you all that. I read a book not too long ago, and I'll close with this. He is a Danish writer. His name is Isaac Denitsche. And he said, all, he said this, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. We must learn, his phrase, we must learn to storify our lives. Storify them, meaning your life, hear me, all the chaos, the mess, the difficulties, the problems, those things and those parts of your story will make absolutely no sense. You will not have the ability to interpret them and give them purpose and meaning that God intended to you unless every day up until those events, you are living that story. Read Daniel. You know what he saw everything in? He saw why he was in Babylon. He knew why. He even knew how long The prophecy said that he would be there for 70 years. He knew all those things. He knew when to pray about when God would release them. He knew all of it. So he faced the temptation of eating the drink and the wine or the the food which the king gave. He says he wasn't going to eat all of that stuff in Daniel. You know why? Because all the events, lion's den, fiery furnaces, all the things about how he looked, what he ate, what he drank, they're not just issues. They're part of the story. And he knows the events and the story, the part of it he's living in. And he's right. You can handle any sorrow as long as you put it into a story. He says, but too many people, listen to this, they have surfing stories. A surfing story, according to the author, was you catch a wave and you ride it. And then you catch a wave and you ride it. And then you catch a wave, and in other words, oh, yeah, I'm really into this now, and this came into my life, and that changes everything, and I ride that wave until it settles down, and then another one comes into my life, and I ride that one, and it moves me over here. You know why? Because you have no ability to interpret those events, those parts of the story, because you're not living in that story. He says, is there a storyline running through all of your life? Listen to this. He's not a believer. He didn't write that as a Christian. But he said this, if you're not living in a story and you can't interpret and see everything through the narrative plot storyline running through it all, here's what he says, you will make a ruin of your life. What about you? What about me? Do you see all the things in your life? Is there the story, this story, the story of is it running through? Do you see it, interpret everything by it? See the authors of it. That's why they could sing a new song. Because they knew God was going to deliver. And they could stand up and be fearless 
and even choose to be martyrs. You know why? Because they could sing and had a new song. They had lived in the victory that Jesus gave. Would to God, would to God, that would be all of us for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Ah, Father, help us. There are alternate stories, different narratives, but the world passes by us every day. There are stories about living for now. There are stories about instant gratification. There are stories about feeling good now and pleasure and money and sex and all that goes with it. And Lord, we'll see all the things, the loneliness, the isolation, perhaps the broken relationships, the health issues. If we don't live in your story, we won't respond to those things as you want us to. We'll think that your story is all about us when our story should be all about you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to sing a new song, a song that we rehearse the victories of our God most climactically in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We can face anything. We can do anything that your story asks us of us because we know that we have that song and it's been sung. Help us by faith to live it out every day and live in it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.